A toast to the hunters from your friends at Grain Belt. May the mornings be clear and the fresh air be crisp. May you find solace in the silence. May the stillness settle your soul. May your long shot stay true. May your heart roam free. May you find what you seek in the fields you stock. May your call to the wild be answered. And at the end of the day, may you share the thrill of the hunt with your friends. So here's to the eight pointers and the 12 ounces. Here's to you and to your thirst for adventure. Bring Grain Belt to the outdoors with our limited edition premium hunting season pack. This season, enter to win a hunting trip for two to Brown's Hunting Lodge, wherever you can find premium 12 and 24 pack cans. For more information, visit our website at grainbelt.com forward slash hunting dash trip. Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, joined as always by the able to my cane, Brandon. That's right. We're sticking with the biblical theme. That's, That's right. And that. why not go to the original founding murder of the Old Testament? That sounds perfect. <laughs> Works out well. Yeah. <laughs> Philea, what's what's killing of your brother? Is it? I think it's phileicide. Phileicide. Yeah, I would not. So there you go. Um, yeah, that might have been one that your Sunday school teachers kind of avoided the whole founding murder of the Old Testament. But it's a pretty important story. And I write about it in my forthcoming book, The God of Wild Places, Rediscovering the Divine in the Untamed Outdoors. Wow, that that was seamless. That flowed. <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> Which you can get uh, order pre-order online at Amazon, or if you like to support local independent bookstores at bookshop.org. It's available. Uh, Brandon, yes, sir. How you doing, man? How tell me how how is your South Dakota run? Uh, I'm doing great in the South Dakota run. I, it went really well. It, it turns out I was I was mistaken. It was an event for Onyx. Oh, and, uh, Onyx cool. Hunt. They threw a huge party they took out a portion of a bar paid for everyone's drinks gave us food uh and then we put on a live flush podcast that went very well gave away a lot of stuff oh man that sounds fun and that was right on the eve i think of the resident pheasant opener in south dakota that is correct but i heard rumors that none of the residents actually go on opener that's not not many at least i think that's true i mean my friend jorge he did go out i think on sunday and he said he saw three he shot at two and he recovered one there you go so and i was up grouse hunting it was super fun i probably had the most successful grouse hunt of my life i shot three grouse over the course of two days and maybe we had 15 to 20 flushes um which is super fun also shot a wood duck missed a couple other ducks there are not many ducks left but uh we found a little hole where some of them were hiding i had my friend Tony, who's just a world-class chef, was up there with me. And then um, his partner, Seth, and Courtney joined us after a couple days. Oh, my gosh. It was just fantastic. And um, the next trip is pheasants in South Dakota. That's that's around. That'll be the same week. Uh, th- this very week, th- this podcast is coming out. Later in that week, I'll be driving to South Dakota for my first pheasant hunt. That's awesome. So yeah, it sounds like a really great weekend and a really good upcoming week. Yeah, and I'm I'm sorry I I was I, being that I still was bouncing back from COVID and everything. I didn't have you come up to squirrel hunt, but those we're gonna we're gonna get a gun in your hands here before too long. Perfect. Yeah. Um. And speaking about a gun in someone's hands, my guest today was a marine. Is a marine. Aha. Uh-huh. In the present tense, is a marine always. N- no longer in active service, uh, active duty. For 27 years, he was. Russell Worth Parker has become a preeminent outdoors writer, uh, especially writing about um, out the outdoors life in the southeastern United States. Um, but his, all, you'll see in the show notes, follow some links, get to some of his writing. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, and he's a great guest, uh, as you'll see. We, we have a very wide-ranging conversation in which we talk a great deal about uh, toward the end about war. And I, I really love that I have a lot to learn from him um, as somebody who landed in the same kind of profession that I'm in now, but the, the, the paths that we took to get to this place are very different. And uh, I, I think 
hopefully that's what will make for a rich friendship between us. Uh, so yeah, really, really happy to have Worth on. And follow, like I say, find his writing. Thanks for listening, subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing this podcast with a friend. We really appreciate all the support. And also thanks to a sponsor, Grain Belt and their camo sports pack available wherever you buy your beers. When you're on a hunting trip with your hunting buddies, grab some Grain Belt. Wait till after you're done. Unload the guns. You, the hunt is over. And then crack open a cold one. Hand one to your friend. Crack one open for yourself. And uh, tell some tall tales about the deer, grouse, pheasant, turkeys that you could have had if you just would have aimed better. Grain Belt, thanks for your support. Here's my conversation with Southern writer extraordinaire Worth Parker. Worth, thanks for coming on uh, the Reverend Hunter podcast, and thanks to our mutual friend David McIlvaney for introducing us. Well, and thank you for having me, and I will echo your thanks of David. Um, we got some housekeeping to before we get into the interview proper. We got some housekeeping to take care of. Is that cool? Are you good with that? Whatever's clever. Um, uh, Pheasant Fest is March one through three in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and the night before Pheasant Fest, Trampled by Turtles is playing a concert, and I've got an extra mm. room at the Airbnb I'm looking at right now. So I'm just saying. I know you're I like where you're going. The trampled, the, the trampled by turtles, it's almost sold out. And I, of course, uh, uh, you know, as a lowly Cretan, I had to buy tickets. I know you could just like send a text to a a a, a particular tattooed singer with a, a wide brimmed hat and a guitar slung over his back, and you'd probably get backstage passes. So I'm just I do saying, suspect he would be willing <laughs> to help a, us out. There's a there's a there's a currently a room available in a four bedroom house Airbnb in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Okay, that's housekeeping item number one. All right, that's very uh, house, useful to know. Housekeeping item number two is uh the following month, the backcountry hunters and anglers rendezvous is in Minnesota in like third weekend of April, which happens to be right around the turkey hunting opener. And I happen to own, co-own with my family, 276 acres in central Minnesota, about which you have read. As you uh, say, which I feel intimately familiar at this point. And I saw, in fact, this very morning, I got an image from a neighbor of a big tom on our property. And I was just up there grouse hunting and twice ran into a... Uh, big group of turkeys running through the woods They're so the best. you might consider two trips to the uh, upper midwest in the spring or just stay bro just don't you have like a camper <laughs> load your family well actually there is sitting outside my office door my office being the wide spot in the hall at the back of the house uh a a boxed up brand new tule tent that's hopefully going to get on my truck by the end of the day. So okay, that might offer something. All right. So those that's, that's a b business item. Number two, business item. Number three, what is it in the South with going by your middle name? Because I have one of my best friends in the world is from Mississippi. His name is James Ryan Parker and he goes by Ryan. And it's a little bit like almost right out of the movie stripes. If you call me James, I'll kill you. <laughs> well, I think in the South one, you know, we come in second, I think only to the Buddhists for, uh, ancestor worship. Ah, and okay. so all my names are family names. Mm -hmm. Um, and Russell is my mother's side of the family. That was, was her maiden name. Um, and then worth was the name of my great grandfather, uh, who was a farmer guy worth wall. And he went by guy, oddly enough, perhaps encounter to your hypothesis but um you know he was just i think so pr so proud to have his first grand great grandson named after him and and that's just what i've gone by you know i never knew anybody named worth 
um, until we moved to North Carolina in 2006. And now I've started meeting a, a fair number of them. So I think it's a North Carolina name. And I know my family originally started here or portions of the family started here across North Carolina. Um, I'm related to Brevard's, you know, of Brevard, North Carolina, and, and mm-hmm. some of my other family landed here in the Cape Fear region where I live. Um, and so I, it's just family names. You know, the other thing we do is call people by their entire name. Um, mm-hmm. I knew a woman named Sarah Ball Proctor, and she was she was Sarah Ball or Sarah Ball Proctor. She was never Sarah. Um, it's just how we do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I first ran into it in college when I had a friend a dear friend who's named, uh, she went by two names, Mary S. S. Amina was her middle name. And I'm like, well, why don't you just go by Mary? She's like, well, my sister's also named Mary. So we go by different. Right. Yeah, it's just, and, and, and your I, Uncle Trip, about whom I've read, uh, that was his middle name, right? Oh, yeah, he was he was Charles Trapeer Russell. Yeah. Um, and, and went by Trip. But interestingly enough, his, his brother, my Uncle Jim, who I was with this past weekend, um, he is the father to one of my two first cousins, both named Robert Lee Russell. One is Robert Lee Russell the fourth. One is Robert Lee Russell. Wow. Yeah, and and my one of my dearest friends goes by the name Trip with two P's, but his name he's North Carolina boy. Yep. George Hiram Fuller the third. But he it's goes a, by and that's trip. real common for thirds. If, if yeah. somebody's a third, you meet a lot of trips. Our trip was was a playoff trip here. <laughs> Which okay. is the name, one of my daughter's four names. <laughs> yeah, I saw that in that same piece. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, let's see. This would be housekeeping item number th- number four. Okay. Um, once a Marine, always a Marine. Like you never, in writing, in print, you would never call someone a former Marine. Am no, I right about that? I wouldn't. I, you are correct about that. And it... it poses a difficulty sometimes as a writer when you are trying to describe, you know, someone's status. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think sometimes I say no longer active Marine. I mean, I personally don't get hung up about it. If somebody calls me a former Marine, that's fine. It's what I did for 27 years. It's not what I'm currently doing, but it is definitely an almost three decade, really more than three decade, if you count the time I was an ROTC kid. Uh, that informs the way I think and work and do now. And, and ultimately only in that uh, I seek to never do anything now that I think would discredit the core, even though I'm a, a private civilian. Yeah, so this is, but th- this is a uniqueness about the Marine Corps, isn't it? Because you, would, you wouldn't say the same thing about someone who served in one of the other branches. Like the Marines no, not, are unique in that sense. Yeah, I, I think that is a, a unique cultural aspect. I mean, I would, I would be careful to you know make any claims about anybody else's service and how they think about it and what they do. But you know, you certainly do hear Marines say, you know, you you are a Marine. You you become a, you know uh, you were in the Army, you were in the Navy, you were in the Air Force. You you are a Marine, and and we always say you know the change is forever. And and I think in a lot of cases that's absolutely true. It's ironic and kind of funny that a lot of the the Marines you meet who seem to be counting down the days until they get to get out and be a civilian again, or, or, or four years later, they're the guys who hang out in the red satin jacket and the <laughs> trucker hat that says USMC and, yeah. you know, everything. Well, back when I was in the Corps, you know, <laughs> okay, buddy. I remember back when you were in the Corps and you couldn't wait to get out. But, right. um, but nonetheless, I, I think that matters because, you know, a lot of the mission of the Marine Corps really is just returning improved citizens back to America. That's good. That's interesting. Well, this is um, a related, so it's maybe this is like item 4A. Um, in print, literally speaking, Marine is not capitalized, which I see that mistake getting made a lot, right? Like you, if you were to talk about somebody as a U.S. Army Ranger or whatever, um, you would capitalize the R in Ranger, but in 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 a kind of uh, unique literary styling, Marine, the the M in Marine is not capitalized unless you're, of course, writing out, you know, U.S. Marine Corps. No, actually, so the opposite. Um, okay. okay. At least for Marines, except as you you may be referring to one of the articles I sent you where I had multiple back and forths with the editor um, who I, I like very, very much and who I frankly credit partially with me even having a career. Um, but I, I told him, listen, if you guys don't capitalize Marine, you're going to hear about it. 
Hmm. And they're like, well, our style guide says not to capitalize Moreno. Yeah, like, that's right, what I thought. I, yeah. I'm not in any position to argue with your style guide. And sure enough, <laughs> when that piece People of writing came out, I saw multiple comments. Why is Marine not capitalized? Because Marine is a title. It is a status. You do become huh. a United States Marine. I was also taught that Marine is not capitalized. And I think it's like in the AP style guide. It's not capitalized. Oh, I'm sure that's that true in the AP. And yeah, I, I, I use the AP style guide in one of my jobs. Um, and I, I just wholly ignore that, that fact. Okay. All right. Let's see. Item number five. Have you ever used the word hang dog in, in print? I don't think in print. I, <laughs> okay. I certainly. It seems familiar. like a Southern kind of idiom that you might use. Well, there's any host of Southern idioms. So I mean, it's not an unreasonable <laughs> supposition, but uh, I don't, I don't think hang dog okay, is in my dog. lexicon with any okay. great regularity. Okay. I mean, there, you, and how about might could? Do you, do you oh, yeah, say might could? Multiple oh, times a day. That drives might me crazy. Could be, might could do. Fixing too. <laughs> I do a lot of fixing. Okay. Um, which is a predicate to actually doing. Um, right. But yeah, might could. I love might could, as a matter of fact. Really? It's a good way to get out of something. Yeah, because, you know, in the South or in Southern culture, passive aggression is is really important because we're an honor culture, or at least historically the South has been an mm -hmm. honor culture, which leads to violence. And so... And I'm not saying Southerners are innately more violent, but I mean, there's a whole lot of historical study on the fact that, that Southern culture is an honor culture and that violations of honor are often uh, often lead to violence as a means of repairing honor. Hmm. Um, a way to avoid that is passive aggression. And so if I don't want to do something, well, might could. Um, <laughs> it's I could like, a, I think, wouldn't it be considered a double subjunctive? Man, I don't know. I <laughs> I, I'll probably say this again, but I have no qualifications to have the career that I currently have. None. Um, I, I mean, I, I did all right. I, you know, I was an advanced English kid, and I was an AP English kid who was at the bottom of the AP English class. But I had to stay after in advanced English, and I still couldn't diagram a sentence. And and my wife, who's a, a lawyer, understands all the vagaries of writing far better. I'm like a shade tree mechanic, but for words. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of figured it out by doing yeah, I mean, I, your your writing uh, is wonderful. It's I think what I've read of it, it seems to me deeply southern. It's a different style of writing that you're. I think just think you're able to get away with things that I probably couldn't get away with as like an overeducated Yankee, you know. Um, but you've obviously yeah, you've read you've read a great deal. Yeah, I'm a I am a voracious reader and always have been. I'll read a cereal box if that's the only thing at hand, um, you know. But I mean, I, I say I have no quals. I've got a a college degree. I've got a law degree. I've got a master's. I mean, I've got a, a fair amount of schooling by any standard. Mm -hmm. um, but I and and I think a law degree is actually an exceptional bit of training for writing in a certain way. It certainly beat passive voice out of me. Um, cause I failed my very first legal writing assignment. I mean, like literally big red F. Um, but I don't, I've never been, I don't have an MFA. I've never been in a creative writing class. I was talking to a buddy of mine who's an MFA in creative writing here in Wilmington, which is a really, really good MFA program. Um, and I don't know how a workshop works. I don't, I don't know how writers get together and do writery things. I just mm -hmm. sit down and beat on keys till it sounds right to me in my head. Um, but I, I don't know, man, subjunctive and all that stuff. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm thrilled that you've come on. I think we, that's, that's all the housekeeping is out of the way. So all right. unless, unless you have any. No, man, I'm just no. really happy to be here too. I, you know, <laughs> I, I initially, when David said to me, Hey, you ought to be on this show. And he described you and he sent me a couple of links and I was like, I don't know, man. Uh, is he going to have a guy who's got the various whatever my religious background is. And he's like, well, he just had this atheist on. I was like, oh, okay, well, we'll probably probably get through it. Um, <laughs> and then I read yeah. your book, of course, and and I, I felt moved to text you from a taxiing airplane within the first 40 or 50 pages, um, you know, that it, it really connected for me. And so I'm, I'm real glad to be here. Yeah, really thanks. Glad. Well, my mother just heard me say real and, and re recoiled in horror. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because I think I mean I'd I'd run across your writing before, but it was it was good of David to kind of bring it uh, front and center for me. And I think um, uh, we. It's funny for me sometimes. Uh, I I cross paths with somebody whose background is so different from mine. And I really do think your background is so different from mine and you've had experiences so different from the, the, the years, the, the, the nearly three decades that you spent in military service, I was basically spending those same decades, like in the Academy, like as deeply ensconced in the, which but that was is, service, you which were in service is as far from military service as you can imagine. Um, it's the most soft, bougie existence to, you know, be in a PhD program at Princeton is not, um, it's, it's nothing but kissing people's asses and, and bloviating. And anyway, um, and yet I read your writing and I think, okay, I too have put a plastic bag over my hand and pulled, uh, a something out of my dog's anus so <laughs> we have maybe we're you know brothers from a different mother or whatever well, i i think not to to pound the the too obvious nail but i really think the sporting life uh, of which in a way i'm a late arrival um is a unifying one Mm. Um, I say in a way only because, I mean, I grew up fishing and, and hunting periodically, um, you know, because that's what you do to be male and Southern in the eighties, nineties. I don't know if it's still a necessity, although there seems to be a hunting tradition here where I live and I see a lot of young guys at least dressed like it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so I, I think that is a unifying factor. I mean, I've had conversations because of the link that hunting has given me with people about things that most folks shy from. Um, and an example I'll give is, you know, I, I wrote a piece for Garden and Gun, and bluntly, I don't even remember which one it was, although I, I think it was the one about my Uncle Trip that you mentioned. Um, and, and they posted it in their Facebook group. Hmm. And and typically, I mean, I, I think my readership is of a lot of Southern, you know, Caucasian, probably north of 40 folk, um, at least in my, my garden and, and gun writing. Because I write a lot about, you know, memory and, and past and place from which I'm derived, which also means I'm usually writing about people who are older than me or dead. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... So I get a lot of comments from, you know, that crowd. And then there was an African-American guy who commented on there about how much he liked it. So I just said, hey, man, thank you. Uh, and that started a conversation online, which started an instant message, which started a text chain with a guy named Alex Harvey. Um, and Alex is a really neat guy with whom I have a, a fair bit of interest in common. Um, and he's, he's an African-American man in North Mississippi. Um, and he and I have had some very frank, very direct conversations about the state of the nation and race and relations and the South and politics. And I've had those conversations with two other uh, African-American men who were very generous with me in, in, you know, having those conversations. But it all oriented around hunting. And I've come to call them campfire conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's allowed me to, to pick up the phone with a fellow hunter ostensibly for other, well, actually reason, actually for other reasons, but I've had conversations that were supposed to be a 30 minute conversation about writing that turned into a three hour conversation about very real issues in both of our lives. Um, and it all starts because we're comfortable with one another as sportsmen and we feel like each other is someone that we'd like to spend time afield. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's something, I mean, I do think that is something when you meet somebody and you think I'm, I'm willing to, uh, you know, spend four days with you sleeping in the same motel room and, you know, walking around with loaded firearms, you gotta have a, yeah, that that's, they're not just anyone I'd let into that circle. And I'm sure. No, I'm, I'm going to get up at three forty-five tomorrow morning and drive two hours to spend 12 hours with four men I've never met. Hmm. Uh, because, uh, 
of, of riding and fishing. And so I'm going to be offshore out of Moorhead City tomorrow fishing for Oahu, which is mm-hmm. something I've never done in my life, at the invite of somebody who I met because of riding. Um, and we've had nice phone conversations, but never met in real life. And it, it's all oriented around this commonality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you, um, you're, I, I'm, I mean, there's, there are other similarities like you be, uh, that we have because I'm, I'm too a late, as you read in the book, you know, kind of a, what, uh, Tovar Cerulli termed an adult onset hunter. Uh, I did like, you know, pan fish fishing when I was a kid, but never, and maybe my uncle took me to a game farm once or twice, but, uh, it wasn't until my, really in my forties when my life went upside down through divorce that I, I dove into it. And yeah, I've, it's not only been a spiritual outlet for me, but yeah, made great friendships and, you know, already like, uh, next week headed out to South Dakota for the first pheasant hunt of the year. And, you know, the text chains going back and forth of where are we going to meet and which field are we going to hunt first? And, um, who's, you know, who's in charge of dinner the, that second night and, all that stuff is just is I'm just electrified by it at, at this time of year. Yeah, I, I mean that's the excitement, right? I mean I'm excited now for turkey season. I, you mentioned a turkey hunt in Minnesota in April, and it is mid October, and I'm I mean we're having this conversation. I'm very present in this conversation, but frankly, I'm also sitting in a, a thicket uh, <laughs> in Brunswick yeah. County, North Carolina, uh, trying to talk to a Tom. Yeah. Now let's, I'd love to hear, um, when you got out of the Marine Corps, what did you think you were going to do? I know you, you ended up here as a writer. You had a law degree. Um, you'd seen, you know, you'd done multiple tours in combat zones. Um, what, what did you think you were going to do? And then how did it instead lead to this outdoors writing life? So I, I will say a number of things and answer that question and feel fr- free to stop me, break it up, what have you, because it's a, it's a lengthy narrative. Um, I wrote something with intention for the first time in about 2015. And by that, I mean, you know, there wasn't a school paper or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got a, it, it did what I, I call it, it went Marine Corps viral. Um, okay. I wrote it on Memorial Day of 2015 and all it was was I, I have this list in my wallet of men and women who have been killed who were killed in action between 2004 uh, and probably 2017. I think is when the list, the last name on the list, is currently and hopefully forever went on. Um, and I sat down and I, I thought about Memorial Day, and it was early in the morning. My wife and kid were still asleep, and I, I thought, you know, I, I don't fall into the Memorial Day scold trap, you know, of, of yelling at Americans about they shouldn't be enjoying Memorial Day. You know, you absolutely should be enjoying Memorial Day. Every guy I know who who died in combat would have enjoyed Memorial Day, probably mm-hmm. more enthusiastically than a lot of people I know. Um, it, it was just, but you should have a name on your lips. And America is increasingly disconnected from the population that that defends it. Um, only 1% of the country serves only, uh, 0.05% of that 1% saw active combat over the last 20 years, by which I mean, someone was shooting at them, they were shooting back or, you know, something was blowing up near them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this, it's, it's a really small experiential gap. Whereas if you look at, you know, our grandfather's generation, my grandfather got shot three times on Okinawa and, came home and got out of the Marine Corps and, and became a judge and was, a you know, pretty heavily involved in politics in the 50s and, and er, into the early 60s um, because he died in, in 1965. Um, and he had a unifying factor of, of service with the rest of that World War II generation. We don't really have that now. Um, and so if we have Memorial Day and if we're going to say, hey, remember what Memorial Day is about – then I feel like you should know someone. And so I wrote yeah. this, this story called The List, and it, that's all it is, is a list of these names and how I knew them and, and what they meant to me in, in some way, shape, or form. And it had to not be performative, and it had to be solely reflective of those people and honoring those people, not, oh, look at me and my trauma, which is, yeah. Yeah. I think, kind of becoming a, a, 
I'm an MO for people today. Um, and so I wrote that. I, I didn't know, I still don't have any real technical acumen, um, but there was a site called medium.com and you can use medium to make something that looked vaguely like a website, which I did not have a website or know how to have one. Um, I, I put it on medium.com. I imported two or three pictures, which made it look like something. And then I posted that on my Facebook account and, and that was reaching the limit of my technological capability. Um, and it kind of went, you know, it went wild for, for me as a guy who, frankly, because I was a special ops guy for a lot of years, I actively avoided any kind of publicity. Sure. Uh, and I had, I had aged and promoted out of that. And I, I kind of knew I was at that point not destined to stay in that world forever. Um, and so I was okay with it, but then that got cut and pasted into the Marine Corps email system. And then I was getting an email to me from guys going, Hey dude, you should read this. And I was like, Hey dude, I wrote that. Um, <laughs> and, and I, I mean, honestly, I like the way that made me feel if I'm, if I'm a hundred percent selfish and honest. And I also liked the effect it had of sharing those names and getting people to comment and hearing from people that knew the names on the list. Um, and saying, yeah, man, I love that guy. And, and thanks for reminding me, you know, or my kids named after that guy or whatever. Um, and so I, I wrote that and I thought, well, gosh, okay. Uh, maybe I'd like to do this a little bit more. Um, and then in 2017, we were stationed up in DC and my Labrador who I got on the heels of an Iraq deployment and who really did help me out with a lot of stuff, uh, Earl, you know, it was, it was the end for Earl and, um, about four nights after, uh, the vets came and, and gave him the, the final shots. Um, I, I sat down and I wrote the last paragraph of what became an essay about Earl and I love garden and gun magazine. And I thought, and I love the good dog columns. And I thought if I could just get published in there one time and everybody would read about my dog Earl and know how much I loved him and maybe love him a little bit themselves, then I'd be good. And, and, and let me, direct, I do, let me interrupt yeah. on that on just on that Please. to say, I know this from personal experience. When you write an editor and say, I want to write, I want to write a story about my hunting dog. I just put him down. He was the greatest hunting dog of all time. That's a tough pitch because the, I mean, I know, cause I sent you my, I, I wrote a piece about, you know, the greatest hunting dog ever. And I, that, that was the, that was the hook that I used in that in that essay because I was like, every guy thinks he has the greatest hunting dog, but I, good for you because I'm sure that garden and gut editor was like, are you freaking kidding me? A, a dude really loved his hunting dog and wants to write about it. Like, no, not a chance. Well, so you, chance. you just credited me with way more knowledge or insight than I had. Been. I mean, Earl was frankly, I mean, he was useless for anything, but holding down a couch or a piece of floor. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and he was, he was a mess, but he was just 90 pounds of big yellow loving lab. And he got me and my family through, you know, two subsequent deployments and, and a childbirth with me deployed and a million other things. And so, and when I say you credited me with too much, I didn't know how to, you implied I wrote a pitch letter. I didn't know how to write a pitch letter. I didn't know <laughs> such existed. Yeah. Um, so I sat down and I wrote an essay and I sent it to submissions at Garden and Gun. And I didn't get any response. Yes, and, normal. That's normal. Yeah, no, it is not. It's completely normal. Um, you know, and I would say that to writers sometimes, like, you got to figure it out. You know, you got to do some social engineering, see who you know and who do you know that knows somebody. But I also spoke to a friend of mine, had a buddy from law school who was stationed up at the Pentagon same time as I, and we'd been friends, our families had been friends during law school before I decided to go back in the Marines. And his wife was, is kind of involved. She no kind of to it. She is uh, in this writing entrepreneur space. She does children's books. She does how to write children's books. She's she's all over it. Um, and she, I said, well, yeah, I'm just not getting any love on this thing. And and she said, did you write a pitch letter? <laughs> and I, I said, um, I don't I don't know what that is. And. She is a fascinating person who is the child of a, a North Vietnamese army officer who met mm. a East German woman before the wall fell. And so Yvonne was raised behind the wall and she's got all the tenacity of a North Vietnamese soldier and all the directness of a, an East German. And she goes, are you just so bad at this? <laughs> I was like, wow. 
I guess. I don't I don't even know what this is, much less how to be good at it. But she took her time and sat down with me. She explained what a pitch letter is. I have a website because I sat beside her while she made my website hmm. um, and kind of went, yeah, I like that. And how do you do that? And so anyway, um, I resubmitted with a pitch letter. And I, I said to him, look, I'm not a writer and I don't know anything about it. Um, but this is the story I wrote and this is why. And I didn't hear anything. And I didn't hear anything. And then I, I was out in the boondocks in Wyoming and kind of walked through a signal and checked email. And there was an email from the editor saying, look, this is good. It's not, it's not good enough yet. But I passed it around to the other editors and we think it's got something. If you want to do some work, no promises, you might get it in. Hmm. It's like, but we only put out, we put out, I think it's either six or seven issues a year and we get a hundred submissions for this column every month. Yeah. Uh, that's what I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. And I, I was like, yeah. okay, I'm in. And I talked to a good buddy of mine who's a hunter and a very, and a successful novelist named David Joy, uh, who lives out in Western Carolina. Um, and, and David said, I said, David, they, they said they're interested, but they want me to do this, that, and the other thing. And he's like, well, I reckon you better do this, that, and the other thing. <laughs> uh, so I did. And I, I think I've now written for them. I've got an article in the current issue. It's maybe my sixth or seventh piece for them. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I love working for them. It's, it's awesome. I've had so much fun. And so I, it's, it, that's a long-winded predicate to even answer your question. But, hey, welcome to the South. Mm -hmm. um, and and your, the answer to your question is when I got out of the Marine Corps, at that point, I guess I thought I was going to be a writer because uh, that Earl essay and another one I wrote for the New York Times as a result of the list having already been published on social media and, and the old gray lady not being interested in second run. Right. Um, especially second run to a Facebook post. But the, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But the edit editor did encourage me to write, try and write something again and said she'd take a look. Well, anybody who writes now, you know, has been doing a little while knows if an editor even cracks the door, you better kick it open. That's right. Uh, and so I said, yes, I will. And I did. My now agent's wife saw both of those essays a, a few months apart from one another and, you know, gave an elbow to her husband and said, you need to, you need to call this guy. Um, I thought it was a Nigerian prince scam when he sent me an email. Hmm. Um, but I, I ended up investigating him a little bit and signing with him. And so now Peter McGuigan of Ultra Literary is my agent. Mm -hmm. And I signed with him two years before I retired, told him I couldn't write a thing until I did. And he said, that's fine. And so... I became a writer because I decided not to become anything else. Hmm. Um, that's what I did. I didn't want to do any of the traditional retired lieutenant colonel stuff. Which would be what? What would be the normal avenues um, after? Wear a, a consultant, of, military consultant, or? military consultant wearing a pair of cargo pants and a and a polo shirt. Um, you know, and I, I'm just not interested. You can have a really nice life with a lieutenant colonel's retirement and a military disability check and a check from one of the big defense contractors mm -hmm. um, for 40 hours of work a week. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, a lot of that is, is very necessary to keep the machine turning. But I realized that a military retirement and a disability check, you know, is not, as I say to people, it's not F you money, but it's F that money. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, one can afford to follow one's passions a bit more. And so for me, um, I mean, and, and bluntly, I'd say to the writers out there, you can make a decent living writing. And, and I, I, I would not live in the style at which I currently do solely on writer money and my wife's income, but uh, we could still have a really comfortable life. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, Obviously, your experiences in military service shaped you, and it comes out in a lot of your writing, even in the outdoor stuff, um, whether it's the profiles you write of other people or the more memoiry stuff about like your own dog or or whatever. Um, and I don't. It, it's an odd. This is going. This question is going to have a bit of a preamble to it. Please, and you know, I'm not shy about a preamp. Yeah, yeah, I know. And it and it's and it's not I'm not trying to set you up because it's an honest question I've had for many, many years. And it goes back to my uh freshman year in college. So this is 
the fall of 1986. And because of my uh, SAT verbal score, I was able to uh, opt out of the freshman writing class and go straight into a seminar. And the seminar was with a professor in the classics department who was writing a book and then doing this freshman seminar on the, on the topic of the book. And the title of the class was The Iliad and Memories of War. And we read, starting with the Iliad, I mean, we read the Iliad in week one, okay? <laughs> week one of freshman year, I read the Iliad, which uh, was being talked about being thrown into the deep end of the pool. But we read, um, you know, uh, war memoirs all the way up to uh, dispatches uh, of Vietnam, you know, my sure. Vietnam memoir. Um, but we read, I think, Red Badge of Courage, and we read... Um, uh, some some Thucydides and Herodotus and uh, anyway, um, I have this very vivid memory of going into uh, Professor Tatum's office for office hours with another another guy in the class in this seminar. I mean, there were maybe ten of us in the seminar, and we were sitting there uh, in his office, and he asked us some kind of question of like, "What have you learned?" in this. And I said something like, war is hell, you know, how terrible is war? And um, my, my, you know, Christian peace convictions kind of overwhelming my common sense and, and also probably trying to say what I thought he wanted to hear as a gay, liberal, um, fairly effete uh, Ivy League professor. And the other kid said, I think unless I go to war, I will never truly know myself nor become a man. And the professor looked at the, my companion and said, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You get the class. I, di I didn't get the class and my, my classmate did. And it, I was reminded of that story when I read the, um, the ultimate paragraph of your essay um on the dawning dawning red in the west the, the red dawn right and this right. quote only that man who has offered himself up entire to the blood of war who has been to the floor of the pit and seen the horror in the round and learned at last that it speaks to his inmost heart only that man can dance which is an yeah. insane beautiful incredible challenging quote for me who spent the years that you were in combat i spent sheltered in the academy you know writing papers and reading books and learning languages that i could then teach to other uh grad students um and i so i don't uh, here's how i'll frame the question for you as a 55 year old man what did i miss by not going to war so first off, I love that you asked that question. And I think a lot of people shy from that sort of thing for, for fear of provoking some, you know, undefined, ill-defined response that is largely, I think, characterized by, you know, tropey visions of, of veterans. Um, but I have made a point to take several speaking engagements and do a fair bit of writing designed entirely to bridge the military-civilian gap, which I see as a pretty critical uh, flaw in our current culture. I mean, that's not a, honestly, it's not an attack or a negative on anyone. It's just a state of being that I don't think is as good as it could be. So thank you for asking that question. Um, and I don't know that I'm going to give you a satisfying answer, but I certainly will give you an answer. Um, cause it's part of my, my obligation. I feel like, um, in, in a way I would tell you, you miss nothing. Um, because I thought the first time I got shot at or the first time I dealt with actual death in combat, um, I would have this revelation moment in which the scales fell away from my eyes. And I'm not, I'm not particularly religious and I'm not well educated about religion, despite my very devout family members attempts. But, you know, I think Paul had the moment on the road where mm -hmm you know, everything became clear. I'm not sure I'm getting that right. You please. Yeah. Yeah. Me. Yeah. Road to Damascus. Um, yep. Yeah. I thought I would have a road to Damascus moment in combat. I thought, and, and that was one of the reasons I saw combat that in my just inherent, uh, 
I don't know what the psychological component of it is. Some of it is is self-worth and some of it is inadequacy of not wanting someone else to be giving or doing more than me. Um, and that's not a, a driven by, um, what's the word? I'm full some philanthropic guy. That's a, that's an internal flaw. Um, but so I didn't, you know, the first time I, I got shot at, um, and I, I apologize to my mom ahead of time and anybody else listening. I know you can edit, so please feel free. But my response to combat every time was to go, what the fuck was that? Uh-huh. Um, huh. And then, fortunately, you have drilled and done enough muscle memory exercises called immediate action drills that you start executing before your brain even really kicks in if you've done it right, if you trained hard and if you've paid attention, if you've done the things you're supposed to do. So what did I learn? Uh, a real good friend of mine said early in my first combat deployment when it was evident that I was overthinking things, um, he's like, dude, you are looking at life through a soda straw right now. You got you to gotta expand your view and recognize that combat offers you a chance to see yourself illuminated. Mm -hmm. So I say all the time, the Marine Corps didn't make me the man that I am, but it showed me who he could be. Um, combat gave me another level of opportunity to express who that man could be, but one need not go to combat by any stretch in my mind to be a quote man or a, a fully realized human or even, you know, fully realizing what it means to, to commit to military service. And I think that is a, another separate issue to discuss sometime about, you know, what validates military service for service members. Cause we've got an entire generation of service members now who grew up on YouTube videos of combat and thought yeah. that's what they were signing up for um, without realizing that the truth of military service, like the clergy, is to be selfless. It is to give and give and give and be an, an always overflowing vessel of service. Um, and that doesn't always mean getting to do what you want to do or even what you think is wise. Simply, it is doing what the nation demands of you. So, you know, maybe someone who didn't experience that in some fashion, be it as a, I mean, whatever. My, my wife is a uh, attorney. She was a civil rights lawyer. She was an ACLU lawyer. We, when I met her, I was farther to the right than I am now. And she was farther to the left than she is now, I think. And, and we've met somewhere in the middle. But my point is, I don't think that her service, which at times incurred death threats from Americans uh, is any lesser than anything I ever did or hmm. you ever. Um, I've got a brilliant letter from a cousin that I, who was a, a hospital reverend or whatever you call a preacher. Mm -hmm. Chaplain. Yeah. Chaplain. And that was what he did his career. And, and he left a, a potentially, you know, lucrative and powerful political, political and law career to be a chaplain because he felt called to the ministry and he felt called to be a vocal white man in the midst of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. He's like, this is wrong and I need to make my voice heard. And the best way I can do that is as a minister. Um, and I, I just admire the guy tremendously. Um, and now he's, you know, he's pushing 90. And I wrote it, I said, you know, I need some guidance because I, I'm very Southern and, and our family is very religious and I'm just not entirely there. Um, but I also know that I've certainly made deals uh, while squatting in a hole and mortar rounds were falling around me. Um, you know, well, things I'll never do again as long as I should get to survive this. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I feel like there's something there. And, and he wrote me this brilliant letter um, kind of addressing service and, and what it means to serve and also what it means to have faith. And I think there's a lot of overlap in the two. And I, as I say, I'm not particularly religious, so that's not a you know, some sort of ecumenical diatribe. It's just the truth. Mm -hmm. Does that answer mm -hmm. the question? Yeah. At all? Yeah. 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 For sure. I, I just, oh, it's just hard for me to believe that combat and war don't shape a person in, in unique ways, in ways that are not attainable um, in a purely civilian life. And I've just, because I've read now, I mean, since that, since that writing seminar in 1986, I have read scores of 
war memoirs. I mean, they I devour war memoirs, and uh, it they seem to um, speak to an experience so unlike, which is probably why I'm so drawn to them. It's they speak to an experience of something that I have not had and will never have, and I'm. And there's a whole nother conversation to have that I often hear um, of people in like my, oh, and not, not only in our generation, I think you're a generation extra like me, but. Um, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm yeah, about I'm, to be 51. Yeah, yeah. And so like, oh, that Gen Xers don't really have it. I mean, you did, but not not in the generational way that that. Uh, Vietnam or World War II or World War I shaped an entire generation of primarily of men who went into war. Um, But for sure, like, oh, my God, look at these millennials. They're so soft. You know, they uh, what are they missing? Well, let's look back. Like, what is virtually every generation of men experienced for time immemorial? And that's war you know, combat and war. Well, and, and what and I'll say yeah. in, def- in defense of the millennials is we fought a 20 year war on their backs. Yeah. I, 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 I served overseas with a lot of millennials and because of aging, I mean, I was 30, let me think one second. I was 32 turned 33 in combat. And I can remember when I first got to Iraq, I was sitting in what passed for our chow hall, which was an old Iraqi train station. Um, and I was sitting there with one of my my junior enlisted Marines. We just walked up to eat, eat dinner together. And there, you know, the, all the units on the base ate in this central facility, which really all they did was just heat up, you know, prepackaged foods and slop them on a plate for us, but fine. Um, so I'm sitting there and he's like, hey, sir, that guy over there, was my, my rack mate at boot camp. I mean, that means they slept in the same bunk mm-hmm. or the bunk bed set, set up. Um, we call them racks in the, in the core. Um, can I, can I bring him over? Yeah, sure. Bring him over. So he, he brings this other Marine over and the, the guy sits down with us and we're talking and I'm doing the typical officer thing. So Marine, where are you from? Blah, 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 blah. Um, and he says, well, sir, uh, I did the invasion last year in 2003. So I, you know, I was in Kuwait for X amount of time, and then we did the invasion up to Baghdad, um, and then I went home to back to Twenty Nine Palms, California, uh, wrapping up my second deployment here, and we're going back, and I will have just enough time to do a third trip over here before I get out, and I'm gonna go to college. So, in his four years in the Marine Corps, that millennial spent the better part of two of those four years in combat. Um, I was 32 before somebody shot at me for the first time. And I had been conditioned well over the better part of almost of 11 years to respond to that and to be ready for that and to be conditioned to that. So, you know, I, I obviously every generation is concerned about what's coming after them, but I, I watched a lot of millennials give a lot. Most of the names on my list are millennials. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I, I think at least but, that yes, component yes. of that population. No, no I, 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 I'm with you on that. It's just, it didn't affect their generation. Like, you know, because it, it, there was no, you know, the, the, the vast populace was not drafted into service, that kind of thing. So I don't, yeah, I don't doubt that there were millennials. In fact, my, you know, my son, uh, who went to the same bougie Ivy league school that I did his best friend from college is a guy who was in the core. And then once he got out, came to college in his mid twenties. And my son was drawn to this guy because he's like, this kid is so much more mature than all the other kids at this school. You know, he's seen so, so much more of life. Um, he's, he's been around, he's, he's just wise to the ways of the world in ways that a lot of kids who go to that kind of university are not. So yeah, I, I hear you. I, I and I, I'm sure that. I mean, I, I don't. I'm not going to dismiss any particular millennials' experience of of that combat for sure. And uh, I mean, let me ask you a, a related question: What's it like on the psyche of you and those with whom you served? The, I mean, I don't know that it's to the level of Vietnam, but it's this like 
look what happened in Afghanistan. Or even, it's you know, I, I wonder if you've heard it in the last couple of weeks, because with the war in the, in the Middle East with Israel and, and Gaza and the Palestinians, like, oh, let's not, I hope Israel doesn't do what we did in Iraq. That would be a big mistake or, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. D- does your service there, is it, does that shadow of the quote unquote success of those conflicts hang over that your, your service? Well, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I I retired June 30th of 2021 was, is my official retirement date. And I got in, I rented an RV and on July 5th, my then 10 year old daughter and I climbed in this RV, which I'd never driven an RV in my life. Um, and, and took off. And we drove the kind of the southern route all the way out to Bozeman, where my wife met us. And, and then we all went up to Glacier and did the trip home. Um, so 12,000 miles, almost all public land was the goal, was to introduce my, mm-hmm. my child to this concept of public land that we don't have a whole lot of in the South. And now I've had a blank spot. Tell me why I'm answering this question. You're answering this question about the, the quote unquote success of, of the conflicts that you, oh, in right. which you served. So, yeah. I got home or I should say about, uh, I don't know, sometime in early August, I started kind of picking up rumblings out of Afghanistan, but I was intentionally avoiding knowledge of that. Yeah. And then on August 15th, it was obvious that the Taliban were on the edge of Kabul, which was kind of, I, I had not really conceived it. I did read write a piece with a guy named Milt Bairden, who's the guy who, who was the CIA officer who engineered uh, the entire war against the Soviets in Afghanistan. And Milt mm-hmm. and I wrote a piece in the National Interest about, look, this is what it looks like when you abandon your allies. Um, but I honestly didn't think we were going to abandon our allies. And and then all and I was used to places like Helmand Province, where the capital is Lashkar the Taliban take, would take Lashkar Gah, and then the Afghan government would go in and kick them out, supported by Americans, you know. And then a year later, they'd take Lashkar Gah again. But it was just kind of this give and take scenario. But suddenly, it's Kabul, and I, I, ne- I, been, I mean, I've spent a fair bit of time in Kabul. I never envisioned the Taliban there, and so that got real serious. And then I got home and got a message from a Marine of Afghan descent. Uh, saying, sir, my family's trapped in Kabul. Can you help get them out? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was retired at that point, and I had no idea, you know, what I was going to do. But but we did, and I ended up working with buddies from the rest of Special Ops Command and the agency and a, and a couple other Department of State uh, entities, almost all retired folk uh, to or, or just got out folk um, to try and rescue Afghans, and we were mm-hmm. able to help do it. And it did color the service and, mm-hmm, and watching mm-hmm. stuff, you know, watching Ukraine, watching Israel, wondering if Israel is about to effectively, you know, embark on a, they say they're not going to occupy Gaza, but are, are they going to spend the next 20 years in Gaza fighting some low level grinding misery? Um, you know, to answer your original question and hopefully this one too, all of this has made me considerably more reticent, uh, about conflict than the Marine captain who was a reservist in 2003 and thought invading Iraq was a grand idea simply for the adventure of it all. Yeah. Um, Because I was completely disconnected from the reality of human suffering. And I would have argued that that wasn't true if you had said it to me. Right, right. Um, Of course. Yeah. Scads of books about war. I mean, just that's what I did, man. Yeah. Um, I was a history major undergrad. I wrote about the Vietnam War. I, I dare anyone to name a Vietnam book uh, and, and say I haven't read it because, I mean, they're, they exist, but they're few and far between. Yeah. Uh, I wrote my thesis on my great-great-uncle who was uh, a senator from Georgia for 39 years and, and President Johnson and how Vietnam affected their relationship, um, which was not a particularly original subject, I should note. Um but uh, I spent the first 30 years of my life immersed in Vietnam and warfare and effects thereof. And I've always been drawn to the human component of it mm-hmm. uh, at the individual level. I'm way more interested in, in like a biography than I am the big blue arrows of it all. Um, but I did not understand the real misery that war brings to people. And mm-hmm. I, I, until I, you know, 
well, example, my my brother and my dad wanted me to watch these horror movies with them one time a few mm-hmm. years back. And I was like, look, I, I have seen the insides of enough teenagers. I, I don't need to see that as entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I feel for civilians, too, man. I mean, I mean, too. Like, I feel for civilians maybe more than anyone. I just I remember and I wrote about this in the New York Times essay I wrote. Uh, I woke up at two o'clock in the morning the first night I was home with my wife and I woke her up and I made her watch the movie Napoleon Dynamite Mm -hmm. uh, because I was wide awake and I wanted her to understand something from the last six, seven, seven months of my life. And I didn't know how to tell her about a two year old's bloody footprints. Mm. And uh, and that is that is what people can't truly understand about war. And that is there's a portion of culture uh and and you and i dance at the periphery of it as sportsmen Mm -hmm. um, who think all things military and tactical are cool yeah and and i was i was right there so you know as sure as you point a finger three are pointing back at you um when i was younger Uh, i didn't care anything about a over under shotgun um you know if it wasn't black plastic i was not interested in it yeah and then i spent my life you know, either employing black plastic guns or employing people employing black plastic guns. And, and there was, there's a a way of thinking that, that that creates. I think what's worse is that that has become fashion for people for whom it is not a profession. And I, I think that's genuinely weird and genuinely deleterious to our culture because it imparts a false image that I held of what war and conflict really is. Mm-hmm. But I've seen a guy literally come apart when we rolled him over after we shot him about, I say we, after four of my Marines shot him about 58 times. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you see a human being rendered into a pile of red goo, um, I don't lose any sleep over it. That was my job. I'm, I'm literally, it does not bother me. I don't need to talk to anybody about it, hmm. but I need people to understand that that is the reality of what you send your young people to do. That is the reality of, you know, these guys who are out at the range pretending to clear rooms. Um, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Whatever you're prepping for, man, get right. on it. Right. You're an American. Yeah. You spend your time however you want to spend your time, as long as it's legal, moral, and ethical, or at least legal. Um, but, Understand that when you shoot someone at a range at, at arm's distance, it's a significant event. Yeah. And I think that's some, there's some empathy deficit that's missing right now. Mm. Holy smokes, man. That uh, warfare gives you, I'll say that yeah, warfare gave yeah. me that to answer your original question. Yeah. What yeah. made me more empathetic? Wow. Well, you just gave me the title for this podcast. Um, I feel like you and I, my friend have just scratched the surface of what we could talk about. Um, I know this is going to be the first of many conversations you and I will have both, you know, privately and on tape. I hope so. Um, And I had an idea just for a podcast, uh, I mean, I th- I've read m- so many Vietnam memoirs and seen all the movies. Uh, you ever want to start a podcast where you and I just like dispatches the things they carried, Matterhorn. We'll just go through them, man. We'll just want, read a... <laughs> Maybe you don't want to read them all again because you read no, them all I would already. do that. I have, an, I have an Instagram page where I discuss military books. Well, books about okay. conflict, I should say. Okay. Um, which is not to at all dismiss your idea. I think that would be awesome. And frankly, I I think our two simultaneously disparate and parallel paths uh, would be a really, really neat way to look at, at conflict and books thereon. Um, I, I, and, and I've read, you know, all those books you just laid out. Um, and, and I've, in fact, I uh, I got to have a very brief, very good conversation with Tim O'Brien about, Oh my gosh. That's the num- um, that's my number one book of all time. Top of my list is the thing. It, it is. I, I I will say this. And I know you're trying to wrap this up, but 
uh, I got that book when I was 19 years old and a mm-hmm. student and a ROTC kid. And I wanted an I was there book, and that's not what I got. And I didn't understand it. My mom sent it to me when it came out. Mm. And I still got that copy. And then uh, 30 years later, almost, um, I was stationed at the Pentagon and coming to the end of my career. And Tim O'Brien was speaking about the things they carried at a college down in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And I bought another first edition because mine wasn't on hand. And I drove down there. Mm. And I said to him, look, I'm trying to be a writer now and I'm a military guy and we have been so focused on, you know, you're so focused on authenticity and, and, and you can't – like it's a cardinal sin to claim something that isn't true, especially as relates right. to combat or to claim some level of participation you didn't have. And, and you rightly get called out on it. And, and that's when he said what I've since read him write about a number of times, the difference between story truth and happening truth. Yep. And it was a gift, man, as a writer for him to say, no, no, it's okay to say something happened a certain way or it happened to somebody that it didn't happen to. You know, there's there's whole portions of uh, the things they carry that happened, but they didn't happen to the guy that he makes them happen to. Yeah. Yeah. Because it serves the story and the story serves the truth. Well, even Um, his insistence on referring to that book as a novel. Yeah, you know, um, and he basically, I think, invented this popular genre right now of auto fiction. This this combo of autobiography and fiction, and anybody who writes a memoir, as I've just done, realizes, well, there's, you know, you you bend the facts for the story. It just is what happens, and you have to figure out what percentage you're comfortable with, you know. Um, so yeah, in, in oh fact, the more we sit here and, and talk about this, like I'm in. If if you want to <laughs> have a podcast where we pick it's it, the you know the Worth and Tony yeah. Book Club, uh, and and we come together and talk about that book, I am totally down. All right, and I've All right. never been. I've had a number of people say to me, "We'll do a podcast about X, Y, and Z," and I have poo pooed it every single time. I am. Uh, I am committing fully right now. So <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you sleep on it, but I appreciate that. And I, I've wondered why you don't have your own podcast. So maybe we can get you on the air. Cause I'm a Luddite man. And, and the oh, acquisition well, of skills I, is beyond me. <laughs> I'm thrilled you opened your Mac this morning. I hope you have a fantastic fishing trip. You get some sleep tonight and, uh, I'll be following your Insta to see where you're hunting and, uh, open invitations for Pheasant Fest and or VHA Rendezvous with a turkey hunt uh, wrapped right in there. So we're going to stay in touch. I know you'll, I'll, I'll invite you back on here. And uh, yeah, you sleep on that podcast idea and start to think if you're ready to reread all those books. But it's been absolutely a joy having you on. And I, I really, really appreciate it. And I hope everybody who's listening pulls up some of your writing and sees the great words you're putting out into the world well i certainly appreciate it they can find me at uh russellworthparker.com uh or uh i'm the editor-in-chief for the tom beckby field journal which writers hey pitch me if you want um at uh, eal at tombeckby.com and other than that uh yeah you can find me at book war which the o's are zeros so b00kwar if you want to talk about books about conflict Mm. Or you can find me at, I think it's worth.parker on Instagram. I'll put all those in the show notes as well. Yep, absolutely. Awesome. Hey, thanks a million. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you.